I'm Audrey Bellis. And I'm Yvette Montoya. And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Español. We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color, making our world a better place. Let's get started. We are here today in studio with Maritza Lugo. Hello. Hey. Hi. Maritza is a artist and illustrator originally from New York, now based here in Los Angeles. She's passionate about art, intersectional feminism, dogs, and Netflix. Maritza's work has been seen and featured in Teen Vogue, Amy Poehler's Smart Girls, Forbes, and Nasty Gal, among many others. I mean, that lineup. Dang, girl. <laughs> do you pretty just, proud of that. Do you just walk in and like, you know, brush dirt off your shoulder in places? All You're the like, time. Like 100% of the time. I'm insufferable about it. You got a lot of press. But let's talk about why she got a lot of press. A lot of press. A lot. I was like so excited and also very surprised. Not because of... It not being good, but right. No, same. Just because a lot of the time, um, you know, press will just build up, except it's not always as expected when it's bigger than what you kind of expected. So let's talk about where the press came from, because you were the curator of the Misrepresentation Art Show. Tell us what that is and how that came about. So Misrepresentation was an art show that was curated for art by women of color, just because of the fact that we don't see that we as a society Um, You know, we don't get to see that very often in terms of art shows. And so it was created just purely based out of the fact that I was in another art show that was predominantly white women's art. And I didn't feel like I saw anything else reflected as as part of myself or any other, you know, woman of color in the show. And I just kind of stewed about it. And I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to put my own show on and only feature women of color. I love that. Uh, And interestingly, Yvette, you were actually in that art show. Yes, I was. Uh, I didn't create for it, but I was photographed for it by uh, Erin, who's also going to be on the podcast, who also did our logo. Uh, Well, I don't know if it's a logo, but uh, Erin, for those of our listeners uh, that are hearing us, in our graphic work for our iTunes cover and our Instagram account, there is a photograph with a pink backdrop of two hands intertwined. And Aaron Rivera photographed that. And the print is called the Unidos print. And Unidos means united in Spanish. And we actually have done a limited run of prints. So each of our podcast guests gets one. They are numbered and signed. And 50 of them will be sold and available. You will get the link at the end of this podcast on where you can purchase them. But Yvette, is that one of your hands? No. No. It wasn't. But tell us about the photography that she took uh, for your series, your portrait series. Well, she did a four-piece series on four different women and she wanted I think it was supposed to be like six but some people dropped out but basically she wanted to get the full ombre of skin colors Mm -hmm. so I was in the middle (laughs) Erin is amazing first and foremost um you know I was super excited to see that piece you know I was telling you that earlier that as soon as I opened her box to review her art for the show I was like this is mine you know the print she has the original oh I do have the original it's printed on newsprint because it was her yeah. first run, and so I own it. Wow. <laughs> so I'm really lucky. <laughs> I have a newsprint version, and I have one of the other prints, prints that she made, yeah. 
it's so beautiful. And the second I saw it, I was like, what a powerful image. It's so powerful. It's like it gives me chills, literally, just because it's so beautiful. And that's, that was what got the most press was right. that series. And I was really excited because I'm like, that's me. But it's also like it's incredible in the sense that that was Aaron's first show, which I'm sure you guys will talk about, which was actually mind boggling for me because I didn't think that that was the case. You know, she was super excited to be in her first art show. And I was like, how is this your first art show? Yeah. And I was super excited that she asked me to be a part of it. Did you have any idea, Yvette, what misrepresentation was when she asked you to participate? No. I had no idea. She told me, oh, we're doing an art show and it's for women of color. And I was like, well. Count me in because I'm that thing. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently you're right in the middle. I'm right in the middle of the colors. And you were in all the banners from all the press. So that was exciting. It was exciting. I was like, that's me. And then like I went up and selfied in front of it. (laughs) Getting some meta moments going. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I didn't. I have any idea that that was a possibility. It was never something that I conceived that could ever be. I don't know why. Like I got out of the art scene because I felt like I wasn't represented and I didn't feel like it was mine. I felt like I'm intruding into somebody else's space and Mm -hmm. I'm not wanted here. So why am I going to try? Which is a really good point in terms of the show. You know, in all of the art shows that I have been in as an illustrator, I've never fully seen women of color. You know, you have the few Hispanic girls, you've got the few black girls, you know, all of that. But it's always primarily either white male or white female art. And I just thought that was kind of unfortunate. And at the same time, I thought, how is this the first, not the first of its kind, I'm sure there have been others, but how is this the first one for Los Angeles or the first one to have as much press as it garnered when it just feels like we should have a space because we should be represented and we should be in those spaces? Tell me about, I remember you were saying something about how um, it had, You'd shopped it around and people were like, no, we're not into that. Yes. I had spoken to a couple of galleries who had um, just flat out said no. You know, and it's when you're pitching it to galleries. um, And again, it was my first show. You know, I was like, I'm going to go through the whole method of it. When I pitched it to galleries, people were flatly like, no, I, I, I don't see this being held here. I don't see why this is a show. But, you know, thanks again. So I ended up unfollowing a lot of galleries, Um, you know, some I won't name, but Pretty big ones that weren't open to it. You know, it's really hard when you hear that people have such limited views, right? Galleries that don't want to participate. Um, And just to wrap up the conversation on the press, not all the press was positive. No. Tell us more about that. Um, So press always goes one of two ways, obviously. Um, The majority of it was positive. And then, of course, you had the flip side, which people were like, why is this a thing? Why do women of color have to have their own show? If there was a white only art show, everyone would call it racist. Oh, that's prejudice. And it's like this show. I'm sorry, not sorry. It's not for you. It's it's not for white voices. It's not for the white perspective. Oh, you know, all lives matter. (laughs) Which Hello. Yeah, Hello. I remember we were on that thread for the BuzzFeed video because there was a BuzzFeed video mm. that you can check out on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm becoming very... Mm. Okay, mm. let's pretend I'm ignorant like some of our people who are listening and have no idea what the BuzzFeed video was about. Okay. Give us a wrap-up or a synopsis. Okay, so we were actually covered by BuzzFeed for BuzzFeed video. Um, they wanted basically a video of us setting up, 
about how important the message was and about highlighting women of color voices, uh, you know, in the art world because they're very, very few. Um, so BuzzFeed was really cool. They filmed us. They put it up. And um, when we actually read the Facebook comments, it was a lot oh, of Lord. It was so many Facebook comments. Um, it was just a lot of if there was a white only women show, you know, this would be racist, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the best part is because I'm very white passing. I got a lot of hate about that, um, which, of course, people don't realize is that Were you, you can be pale. More? Were you getting more hate from white people or from other Latinos? It was a mixture of the both. Yeah. yeah. Yvette saw them. It was it was I was on there. I was like, F everybody. I You're love amazing. that you were arguing with people. Whereas <laughs> I, I was telling, you know, Audrey, I was like, well, I try not to feed trolls. Yeah, you don't want to engage all the time. But sometimes I try not you to. really have to be like, You have enough. to get in there. It was exactly. just ridiculous that they're just like, does everything have to be about you? Does everything have to be exactly. for you? Is it totally out of the question that it's for anybody else but you? Right. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And I think two people reacted strongly to the word only that was in the title. Correct. Because it wasn't only like we weren't saying like we don't want white people. It right. wasn't Let me interrupt that. you for one second. What was the actual title? I believe it was something like uh Women of women of color only art, art show, show in oh, Los Angeles. That's where the only came from. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And plus, you know, as we were being interviewed, it was great because you had the subtitles beneath us. And we did talk about how important representation is in pop culture, in, you know, social media, in basically all broads of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, By broads, for broads, exactly. on the broad spectrum. <laughs> exactly. So it's also crazy because the show in itself brought a lot of personal stress into my life because I yeah. ended up getting into a huge thing with a coworker. Of, oh, no. I yeah, she um ended up being fired because of kind of it. Um without going into it too much. So she's 25, white female, and her criticism of the show was, "Why are you so and she actually asked me this. She was like, "Why are you so proud that there are no white people in your show?" You know what? Somebody <laughs> actually asked me this about the podcast. Really? They said um, it was something to the effect of like, well, you know, I really care about women of color. But since I'm white, I guess I shouldn't ask you if I should be on your podcast. And it was said like extra snarky. And she mm -hmm. goes, mm, I'm wondering how many white girls. Oh, wait. Nope. Just brown girls. Right. And I looked at okay. her. Okay. Right? I mean, if people could see my expression right now. Rude. And I mean, like, if I walked by you on the street, you have light brown hair, you have yeah. green eyes, you're fair skinned. I mean, any of us could pass. I mean, I even, For luckily, sure. you guys even have names that you can pronounce in Spanish. Audrey Bellis is so right. white. Yeah. And, um, I was so offended. I was like, please, let's, you know, let's have a friend break up right now. Yeah. <laughs> Lose and, my number. And that's the thing. And my coworker, you know, she asked me that and I explained it. I figured the best way to explain it was all lives matter. Black lives matter. Mm. Kind Let of, me interrupt you for a second. Sure. Um, do you think that she was approaching this from like just being naive and trying to understand? Or do you think it was more of like snarky, like the person that? Um, initially, I thought it was naive because that's how I explained it. I was like, well, let me break it down to It's like Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter is important because we're not saying white lives don't matter, but we're saying black lives have a higher you know, percentage of being murdered by the police, et cetera. And at the yes. end of the explanation, she literally rolled her eyes and said, mm, OK, <gasps> this is at work, by the way. Oh, no. Um, so much so that it ended up building up into a massive confrontation. 
where I was called a lot of names, uh, including Ratchet, which I thought was great because people see me and they don't think Ratchet. (laughs) God, I wish somebody would call me Ratchet. Um, I'm so buttoned up. But it was... (laughs) (laughs) Yvette's dying because I am so naive and innocent sometimes that I'm like... I want to have some life experience. I'm going to get you some bamboo hoops that say Latina. Oh, I love that. That's oh, my next purchase. Maybe Honeybee Gold. Yeah, we should reach out to her. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there was so much in terms of criticism, in terms of talking about how racist the show was, mm. which, again, you know, as reverse a Latina. Reverse racism is not a thing. Reverse racism is not real. FYI, uh, PSA, guys. Reverse <laughs> racism is not real. Um and of course, brown, ri- brown girls rising is incredibly important. And for me, it's something that I feel massively passionate about. And when I hit things like that or criticism like that, um, it does obviously get under my skin because it's insane that it shouldn't be a concept of people that don't grasp it, if that makes any sense. I feel like it's kind of a no brainer that, you know what, we're actually not seen as much. You know what I mean? Like, My mother is from El Salvador, and the first representation I saw of El Salvador as kind of like a teen um, was the maid from Clueless. When Cher is like, Lucy, can you talk to uh, the gardener? And Lucy's like, oh, you talk to him. He's your gardener. And she's like, Lucy, you know I don't speak Mexican. And Lucy says, I'm not a Mexican. I'm from El Salvador. Oh, my gosh. My neighbor growing up to my parents' house, she Mm -hmm. was elderly. She was, I mean... She was like 85 from when I was a little girl. So she was always an old lady to me, mm-hmm. very white. And I remember she used to tell my mom, like she used to like to go to this Mexican restaurant in Paramount um, called Casa Camino. And she used to always call it Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> oh, my God. Tina, can you can we go to Cinco de Mayo? Oh I mean, God. like, God bless the woman. She wasn't trying to be malicious <laughs> right. in any way, of but she not. also was forgetful. But that's forgetful. also how she remembered it. She just, I mean, like, I remember as a little girl being like, no, it's not Cinco de Mayo. And we speak Spanish, not Mexican. Exactly. And so, you know, that's one of the first representations that I've ever seen, um, which is crazy. Because, again, a lot of Latin culture that is in mass media is predominantly Mexican. I'm still waiting for the Chilean representation. I'm not seeing it. Let me ask you guys this. Is it Mexican? Because we're in L.A. and our larger Latino demographic is that, like, when I was in New York, everybody was Dominican, Puerto Rican. Like, there is a huge think, difference there. Yeah, I think some of it has to do with our geography. Mm-hmm. Correct. I mean, because I'm from New York. So yeah. a lot of that is, you know, a mixture of Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And it's like all of this amazing melting pot that's yeah. happening. And then you do get to L.A. and it's predominantly Mexican. Right. But that also speaks to the kind of overarching washing of Latinos as just Hispanics. That is very mm. true. Absolutely. So, and I think in mass media, you're always going to see just a broad spe- spectrum of it in the sense that if we can all paint, you know, one whole Hispanic culture, it kind of cancels each other out, which of course I feel is starting to change. Yes. Because it's very irritating. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love that, that you're bringing up with this, Yvette, is the fact that she is changing this through her art. You are literally not just taking a feminist stance, but your activism. You are driving the views, the education, and people to take action through your art. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about that. And then from Yvette, 
I want to hear about how you've done that as well, because you guys have both very distinctly different styles, and yet both of you are doing the same thing. And for those of you that don't know, if you follow our Instagram account at Brown Girls Rising, most of the illustrations that you see are actually Yvette's original work. Which are beautiful, by the way. Thank so, you. I did not know that you drew. And when I saw your art, I was like, why? Ugh, I oh. wish you had been in the show. You know what? Like, it was actually, I'm going to tell you this. It was actually the show that inspired me to continue. Because oh, I know. Gosh. I'm going to start crying. I know. That's what I told Aaron, too. And everyone was like, oh, my God. Yeah. I, like, started watering up. No. Oh, my God. No, because it. I just... One of my biggest regrets in life is that I didn't pursue art the way that I should have because I was just like, it's not for me. I'm not good enough. No one's going to, who's going to want to see my art? Who's going to want to see something? And that voice is always there. That voice is always there. That voice never goes away. But the proof of people's responses, we're getting people asking us, where can I buy this? Which is amazing. Right? Amazing. It's which crazy. is incredible for you because I feel like that encourages and that also encourages other artists or young artists to continue right. going because, you know, as a as a freelance illustrator and the fact that I've been doing this um, for the last five years and I've been able to support myself through my art, first and foremost, that's a huge feat. Yeah. Um, but even with that, that voice of doubt, that that voice of no one's going to want to buy this. Who wants to see that? That never goes away. Right. And the most important thing is that I kind of tell it to shut up because yeah. I know that I'm talented yeah. and I know that and I can so do are. more. I oh love my God. your stuff, dude. Thank you. Um, but I always get so weird. I'm like, oh, please stop looking at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the most important thing is to tell that voice or any other voice that tells you to doubt yourself to just shut up because it's not true. And if art or words or whatever your hobby is that could flourish into a career I think it's the most important thing to be louder than that voice of doubt. And you're not just being louder than the voice of doubt and inspiring people. You guys are actually, both of you, sending strong messages to people and taking stances. Um, You know, one, that you can look like us and do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two, um, this quote-unquote look like us is not really a box that you need to fit in anyways. And three, you're taking strong political action. I mean, you did this Disney series about the Affordable Act healthcare, which affects every single one of us. Right. Which is super important. And the fact is... And if I can pardon, uh, interrupt you for a second, tell our listeners what the series was first and then... Okay. So the series actually came out, the first set of series of it, or the first set of images, I should say, came out last year. And it was basically describing it was for Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, which is always January. Mm. And my co-collaborator, Danielle, you know, she came up with this idea and she wrote me and she was like, you know, my original illustrator backed out. Would you be interested? I literally said yes after I read the email because I was like, this is so amazing. And I'm kind of sick and tired of seeing Disney princesses as, you know, Star Wars characters or Disney princesses as other Disney princesses or you know, there's a huge, huge audience there for that. And so we figured it was great to turn the idea on its own head and to actually make images that were powerful enough to encourage women to, you know, seek getting tested, seek, you know, getting the shot or, you know, seeking birth control, anything like that. Because it is so crazy that I think 56% of men have never been tested for an STD. Oh, God. And it kind of speaks to, for me, it speaks to the louder message that I feel like birth control and safe sex is on the shoulders of women 
yeah, when it, it should be a shared responsibility. Right. Um, and then it, it goes into a whole can rant I, about that. Can I just tell you, as soon as you said that percentage of men that don't get ST testing, I literally just tightened my knees a little tighter. And that like, is a fact. Oh. That's the craziest thing. That's a fact. Um, Wrap it up, people. <laughs> literally. literally. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, um, the second series of the images were released also in January of this year. And, you know, it was basically we were presenting it before Trump was inaugurated. Um, it was presenting what would it be like if all of the things he's talked about became a reality, which, as we can see, are is, are becoming yeah. and is now a reality, which is the most frightening thing of all. Um, but the new images were all about, you know, Belle losing her birth control. Um, unfortunately, Jasmine and Aladdin having to, you know, set up a miscarriage funeral, which is, you know, mm. I could never even imagine what that would be like let alone forcing a couple to have to deal with that right. on top of, um, you know, Mitch McConnell silencing Ariel because she had already lost her voice because she didn't speak yeah. up. Right. Um, and then, of course, the one that's my favorite is the Pocahontas one, because also too. in media, we don't see the representation of Native Americans. And you do have, you know, the pipeline and you have Standing Rock and, you know, to to have Pocahontas be told that her child is ineligible for any care because it's a pre-existing, quote unquote, a pre-existing condition because he drank contaminated water breaks my heart. You know, and I think it's also super important that people don't forget about Flint. When the Affordable Health Act came into play, I have a pre-existing condition. Um, I have one ovary that was surgically removed from a ruptured cyst and I have... Um, uterine fibroids and when the ovary was removed it was an emergency surgery and I was deemed to be uh, high risk for high risk pregnancy and a few That's other crazy. complications and I used to pay out of pocket over $500 a month for health insurance and I absolutely needed it because I was going into like early menopause yeah um, so it was like a do or die situation I had to have it um, the Affordable Health Care Act was when I was able to get appropriately priced insurance for the first time and no longer be stuck with that pre-existing. In fact, right. with the pre-existing, I could only take high premium stuff because nobody would insure me. That is crazy. Yeah. It is absolutely insane. It is devastating to think um, how many people are going to end up being uninsured. And in fact, I read a statistic somewhere that um, bankruptcy, excuse me, Medical bills are the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States from people who are underinsured and have an emergent situation. Of course, because you're also it. getting charged like $3,000 to go to the ER. But, mm -hmm. you know, I have friends now who aren't insured and they're like, oh, I don't I don't feel good. I'm like, go to the ER because yeah. the bills will be there. But I remember hearing doctors in the ER complaining about the ACA because they're yeah. like, now everybody comes here like it's the regular doctor. Again, because they don't. It's like, why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of craziness, I feel like. And so the drawings were to highlight that, which, again, as we've seen, is becoming a reality. And so, you know, the press for that picked up literally a month later, mm -hmm. um, which is crazy as well. And that's how we were, you know, in Teen Vogue. And that's how we were in Glamour. And I love that. Um, Latina Online. Yes. Planned Parenthood shared it as well. Um I love that Latina was like, a Latina illustrator is doing this for other Latinas. I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been amazing. And then, of course, you, you've got trolls that are encouraging Disney to sue us when oh, it's covered yes. by the parody law. 
because um, we're not claiming that these images are ours. I would never say that I created right. Belle, Jasmine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's always fun. Oh, my gosh. What was the uh, – well, I guess what was the response from the trolls for this? Um, so this one, we've actually seen a lot more articles. I was just seeing them yesterday. We're being uh, written about on the super right kind of right wing websites. Um, you know, so we've been called That's everything scary. from um, entitled skanks who want Louis Vuitton insurance and how entitled are we? And it's like, <laughs> oh, sorry, I just want to be able to get birth control. <laughs> Does Louis Vuitton make insurance? Um, that would be amazing. Can yeah. I get a Louis Vuitton case to hold my birth control pills? I'll get a monogram the... birth control set. Thanks. The one like... that comes from the pharmacy is plastic <laughs> and ugly. Yeah. So, um, but we're seeing a lot of that and a lot of uh, resistance, not resistance, but, you know, you get the negative comments on um, on Twitter. I got into a little thing with a, a white female journalist on Twitter because she was oh. like, this is satire, right? And I was like, well, sorry, not sorry. You're a white woman. So it doesn't apply to you, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, but that's the reality of it. And way to have some journalism or journalistic integrity of like, let's research all sides. Let's put together some informative stuff like yeah. her own opinion is well that doesn't happen anymore your opinion is the news now and i feel oh, like right. that's the biggest fallacy there is wait right. but according to trump it's all fake and it's all liberal so it should be on your side yeah that which was is sarcasm whole... for people listening <laughs> <laughs> Don't which is also us. just super scary that like free press is now the enemy of the white house but yeah that's you know it, it happens criticism is there it's like that doubtful voice. I kind of tell it to shut up. And as a child, I've always been super defiant. I've always been, um, you know, you know, my mom would be like, you know, you're so um, problematic. And that's always been me even as a child. Did she ever read that book, The Problem Child? My parents had that. Oh, God, no. My mother doesn't have <laughs> my mother didn't have time for books <laughs> with three kids. But, you know, she'd always she'd always be like, you're just you intimidate people. I've always been like that. I've always been a staunch feminist since I was a kid. <gasps> me you know, too. My mom just told me that uh, this weekend. Really? Erin actually came over to sign the sign and number the prints. And uh, my mom goes, it, it, for those of you who don't know Erin, Erin is a little more introverted. She's a little, um, she can be quiet, right? Yeah. Um, and my mom goes, you intimidate her. And I go, I don't know if that's true. And my mom goes, oh, oh, you're intimidating. <laughs> and I had a um, a recent breakup with somebody that I was seeing, and my mom literally goes, "Mika, mm -hmm. that's how it always you... starts." Yeah, and there's the pause and the finger, Mika, mm -hmm. you can be intimidating. She was like, "If you don't get on board with this, you might miss your window, and then you're going to end up old alone without kids forever. Because who's going to put up with you with the way that you behave?" And I go, "Wait a minute! When we were together, you told me to break up with him." Like, I love that. Why do moms do that? I had a crappy boyfriend. My mother was like, "Ay, Dios mío, I hate him." And then as soon as we broke up, oh, he was the sweetest thing. And I'm like, "You hated him? Where were you when you were saying <laughs> that you hated him?" Um, but I think that touches a really, really big vein. Yep. In a lot of like Hispanic Latina culture with mothers mm. and daughters and their relationships, because I've literally been told that I've been intimidating my entire life, yeah. you know, and I remember my great grandmother and my, you know, my abuelita and she would be like, you know, if you don't learn how to cook, you're going to be single forever. And I remember as a kid being like, there's McDonald's. He can order Chinese food. Like, why do I have to cook? And so I think it's been really funny in the sense that as traditional my grand as traditional as my grandparents were or my grandmother 
because my mother's very Americanized. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always like, well, Maritz is weird. Mm-hmm. Maritz is weird because she's very upfront and she's very vocal about. She says how she feels and it's Basically, crazy. And it's crazy. And it's like, oh, you know, I remember being like 10. I cannot get novio todavía. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm 10. Like, <laughs> why do I have to have a boyfriend? No, dude, my my mom is feminist. Yeah. And like the political situation in Chile when she was growing up was, uh, you know, communist. Right. So she kind of went to college and was like defiant and was like, I don't want to do this. She didn't I love her. She didn't learn how to cook because she, like on principle, she was like, I'm not doing this. I love her. And so, well, it's not great now. Well, yeah. <laughs> growing up, I was like, this sucks. Right. She's like, oh, mom, make me food. And like, I got a very different upbringing in that both of my parents were both very like you need to know how to take care of yourself right you can't rely on a man to take care of you exactly so i was like well all right okay i i'm gonna argue that point because i was told the same thing you need to be self-reliant you need to take care of yourself don't rely on a man but at the same time i was also told when are you gonna get married same when are you gonna do these things so it's conflicting information Mm -hmm. and to your point maritza about being told that you're intimidating your whole life it's like well well Imposter syndrome, right? Right. If if I'm so intimidating, why is the little voice in my head telling me that I'm not enough and that I can't and will people buy my artwork? Right. We live in exactly. this too much, not enough dichotomy. Constantly. And you always have to find the balance, which is and really I hard to do for some people. Yeah, of I'm course. like a bipolar yo-yo. All I do is go, too much, not enough, too much. Right. I always feel like, am I hustling hard enough? Am I putting out a new drawing soon enough? Am I following? Mm. Am I... Um, how many people are going to like it? Exactly. How many people are going to like it? Is it going like to get it? reshared? What if somebody right. says something negative about it? And then at the same time, I'm like, I just shared a drawing yesterday. Should I? I don't know. I don't want people to get sick of me already. And Girl, anybody, anybody got time for that. You, you know, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. it's always straddling the line and trying to find a balance. Because I feel like as women, we also have the added pressure of, quote unquote, having it all. Right. You know, we're trying to have the jobs. We're trying to have the relationship. We're trying to be I independent. And I hate the having it all it is my least favorite conversation i don't think we can have it all no no i don't think i don't think so either i feel like that's a a very divisive issue that makes women hate themselves and hate other women too that's true and we need to stop putting out so speaking to media we need to stop seeing listicles and articles elite daily this is for you (laughs) 10 ways you can have it all by 30 not 30 you can still have it all like come on Dude, 30, you barely start to figure it out. Exactly. As of like 30 years old, I had decided that I didn't really give a damn if no one was going to like me and that Mm. I was going to be myself because that's who I am and this is my life and I'm kind of stuck with me for the rest of it. So I feel like like yourself. Exactly. For me, the biggest the biggest selling point is to just if nobody likes you, well, you know what? You don't need them in your life. That's it. Well, and I think when people get stuck on this, nobody likes me. It's because they're trying to be liked by the wrong people. Exactly. Right? They think like if XYZ person likes me or this group likes me or recognizes me, then I will have achieved whatever level of unlocked worth that I didn't have. And you're looking for something external. Nobody else can assign that to you but you. And really, if people don't like you, it's more likely that you don't like yourself. Basically, which is, I feel like in terms of art, and I'm sure right. Yvette can also kind of agree, or if not, she'll disagree. <laughs> I'll um, let you know. <laughs> she'll Let's let me it. know. I feel like with art, that's what we're trying to do, is that we're putting out who we are. Right. And there are people like us, and there are people that either agree with us or disagree with us. 
But for me, the biggest point of creating art is that I'm just extending an additional piece of myself out there. And it's it's always on, you know, it's the heart of my sleeve. It's it's who I am. I think that was something that I was also uncomfortable with, putting myself out there so completely. Mm-hmm. And like that little piece of you inside that is so special to you and right. having other people judge it. Right. That's mm. what is the most difficult for me. That's why I stopped writing, too. I need to get back into that. Yeah. Because I was like, you people totally are going to think this sucks. Like, I don't know if I want people to see that in that far inside mm-hmm. of me. Right. Can I just tell you, I have two columns that I don't regularly keep up with anymore and the one the one thing that they tell you and you have to uh, subscribe to this is you can't look at the comment section because it'll destroy you. That's true. I stopped reading comments. For all the press that we got for the Disney stuff, I I didn't read the comments except for that one that told us that we were entitled uh, I was skanks. So, <laughs> I was so mad about all the BuzzFeed ones. I was like, That was oh. infuriating. And I remember texting my boyfriend and being like, these people are mad at me for what I did. And he was like, well, you don't need them. It was so powerful to just be in the room with all these women and see their art on the walls and see that they put their truth out there and see how they were representing not only themselves, but other people. I've never seen myself on a gallery wall. And that was so powerful to me to see my face there. Yes. And people who looked like me, the one that was directly across from us, the girl in the three different colors. Oh, my God. I love that. That was one of my favorite pieces. Her name is Jessica. um, I don't know if she pronounces it Mojica, um, but she is an incredible photographer. And I don't know if she's self-taught, but her piece, just so people can get an image of it, she did three separate photographs and they were in the colors of the Mexican flag. Mm. And she was draped in the color of each specific color. So she was draped in red, she was draped in white, and she was draped in green. And I saw that. And if I had had the money to buy it, I would have bought it. That was genuinely one of my favorite Did pieces. somebody buy it? No, she took it home. For me, that was a travesty that no one bought that. But I think what you're talking about is so, so, so important and so vital to the conversation because people would be dropping off their art to my house and we started hanging it. And I cried so much throughout the entire process and not in like a bad cry, but in the sense that I've never been so proud to see what these women were doing and seeing themselves represented. And, you know, the fact that we were able to get press and the fact that we were able to get written about, like, to me, yeah. it, it's it's something that does always give me chills because I've never seen that before. I've never seen myself in terms of you know, being a Hispanic woman, I've never seen that outside of the maid narrative, outside uh, of the nanny narrative. Yeah. You know, growing up, people thought my mother was my nanny because she's darker than I am. So <gasps> I have a friend that that happened to. She's yeah, dark. sixth grade. My first day of sixth grade, my um, my teacher was like, oh, can you tell Maritza's mother that I'll, I'll meet her on parents night? And my mom was like, "Um, oh. I am her mother. And I won't use the words that my mother used, but... My mother is very much... People used to think that I was adopted because I'm much darker than my mother. I've gotten that too. Um, People have asked my mom... My mom looks like you. Really? Yeah, she's got green eyes and light brown hair and she's Mm -hmm. very fair and she's freckles. Oh, freckles. Um, But yeah, people would ask my mother all the time if all three of us were hers. Oh, Um, Oh, no. So it's, it's always something that, you know, it's always been prevalent. And knowing that I was different because I'm not brown enough or you know, too brown, too brown, or I'm too pale or, you know, but again, it's just so important to have these conversations. Yeah. My friend was at, um, she's a stay at home mom and, uh, she has a darker complexion than I do. And she married a white guy 
and she's at the park with her kid and a woman comes up to her and she goes oh i'm looking for a nanny too do you have extra <gasps> oh, no. are you taking on more children i'd like to know how much you get paid i could offer you more you're great with him and she goes yeah it's my kid and she just looked at her and she was like you're lying oh, oh my, my god. god and she's telling us this story and her you know her little boy has blonde hair mm -hmm. and my friend's like um you know, we used to tease her that she'd get so dark in the summer she turns purple. Mm -hmm. Like she gets super dark. And uh, she's La Prieta in the group. That's yeah. what we call her, La Prieta. And she was so upset. She called me in tears. Of she course. Was like, she was like, I just got, I think I'm banned from the playground. I can't go back. Oh, no. That's great. But that's also infuriating. I mean, that's there's no lack of words that you would offensive. have for someone like that. Nope. Nope. So... so like you said, right? You're either too Latina, you're not Latina enough. The top, or the name of this podcast is Brown Girls Rising. What does it mean to you to be a brown girl? I think to me, being a brown girl is not only a part of my genetic identity or my genetic makeup, but it's also a vastly massive part of my upbringing, my personality. I went to El Salvador for the first time when I was seven years old mm. and I've gone almost every year up until I was like 29, two year, uh, two times every year. Mm -hmm. And my mother raised me with always being very generous and very charitable. And so I'll never forget one of the times that we went and this was before, you know, 9-11 when you could take as many luggages as you could. I'll never forget we had 17 luggages with us oh and it was literally filled with stuff that we were giving away. Because my mom would give things away at the airport. And by the time we got back, we would come back with nothing. And she yeah. would be like, you're so fortunate that I can buy you everything again. But she's like, these people there don't have anything. So you need to learn how to give back. Um, so for me, being a brown girl makes me think of my mother. And my mother is this incredible force to be reckoned with. She is. She is an incredibly strong personality and... I feel like that's a part of who I am. And so for me, brown girls, I do feel like we're kind of having more of an uprising. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which I think is the most amazing part of it all. Yvette, did you travel um, to visit your parents' families when you were growing up? Um, my parents' families. My dad's parents were here. They came over in the 50s and my grandpa worked on the railroad. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, my mom's family, I've only gone to visit them once. They, it's complicated. Well, I, mm -hmm. I guess the reason that I ask is, um, I love hearing that story about your family, how you get to, you guys get to go back. My mom's the youngest of six. My grandma's mm -hmm. here and all my mom's siblings are here. And we yeah. have some other extended, quite a bit of other extended family here. And I remember, um, growing up and I had a lot of friends who were also Mexican who used to go to Mexico often to visit yeah. family. And I remember asking my mom as a little girl, like, how come we don't get to go to Mexico that often? And she goes, Mika, we left there and we came here and everyone's here. So we have no reason to go back. Really? We came here and now we're here. There's no reason to move backwards. That's interesting. And my mom's pretty staunch about not, uh, I mean, we've gone back to visit mm -hmm. for yeah. like special occasions, but, but I can't tell you the last time my parents were in Mexico outside of like some type of, you know, TJ trip for something else, you right. know, or my dad um, never goes back either. Yeah. Really? my mom And my mom's very big about, and you know what else? My mom doesn't talk about coming here. 
none of my aunts and uncles do. And I remember I was doing a class project as a little girl. We were doing an immigration project. And I remember asking um, one of my tias, I said, well, how did you guys get here? And she's like, we came over two by two. Not everybody came over together, but really? two siblings came and then two siblings came. My grandma was widowed when my mom was an infant. So my mm-hmm. grandma had six children. Oh, she had a lot with her. And, you know, didn't yeah. speak English. And the right. oldest two kids came first. Right. And then everybody else came until we were all here together. But my mom, you know, grew up without a dad. My grandma should have been a nun. She never remarried, never dated. Um, my grandma had all those kids. Yeah. You know, and my grandma's, you know, been here for ever. I mean, my mom came. My mom's the only one who went to school here of all her siblings. Because uh-huh. she came over, like, in middle school or early high school. And um, Oh, she was older when she came. Yeah, that's why my mom speaks perfect English. Unless she's mad at me and then her accent comes out. That's me. Oh. <laughs> I mean, even I get that. Well, yeah. Um, I do think it's crazy, though, because um, – not crazy in a bad way, but I do int- think it's interesting because my mother came here in the 70s when she was a teenager. Um, and everything's always been about going back, even though our entire family was here. Mm-hmm. And my mom is one of seven kids – Seven, eight kids, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> But she's part of a huge family. Two hands. Exactly. <laughs> and so they all came together because my great-grandmother was already established in New York. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, we're just going to move there. And so my mother came here without knowing the language. She will tell you yeah. herself how miserable she was. She hated it. She didn't want to come here. And she was like, I would rather just be back in El Salvador. Um, but it's so funny that now, you know, she's so Americanized. But right. We've also, you know, being staunchly Catholic, you know, we've we've gone on the trips. We've been to Guatemala, you know what I mean, to see the Black Christ. And we've been to Mexico mm. to see, you know, La Virgen. Yeah. And for part of my growing up, a huge part of my growing up was traveling to do those little like trips and seeing other family members and celebrating, you know, her her where she came from. So, yeah. you know, for me, like I haven't been to El Salvador in a couple of years, but. I know my way around. I like lived there for like four months after um, college. <laughs> you know, I think this is why I'm so Catholic because my mom married a white guy and he's Jewish. My dad's really? Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> like we joke because I go to daily mass. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think I think that had a lot of impact growing up being told we weren't Mexican enough. We weren't Catholic enough because yeah. I had a Jewish dad. In fact, my mom resisted us being like doing our sacraments early okay. because she wanted us to make a choice about what we felt we resonated with the most, which is very liberal of my parents. I love that, yeah. But like um, that meant I I got to decide that I wanted to do my first Holy Communion and I was 17 and used to drive myself there and do catechism with the second graders for two years on Saturdays. Yeah. And we have photos of my first communion with my veil. And you and then a bunch of little kids. And then a bunch of second graders. (laughs) I was really committed because I was so aware of being, of going to mass like or seeing my friends and they all got to go up and do communion and I couldn't because I had the Jewish dad and didn't do my first communion in the second grade like normal people. Oh no, my grandmother made me. She would wake me up. I did it in like, I don't know, like 93. So I was like nine or 10. Yeah. And you know, she'd be like, no, 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 you're going to go. And my grandma didn't speak any any English <laughs> other than, okay, baby, thank you. And so <laughs> that was basically That's it. So, so I'm so I far did my removed. communion in Spanish, too. I'm not, I'm not Catholic. My parents weren't Catholic. Okay. They were raised both raised Catholic, but they didn't raise us Catholic. So I remember seeing my cousin's communion, and I was like, why is she dressed like a bride? 
I call yeah. that my child bride phase. And they were like, oh, she's my aunt. I remember she told me, oh, she's getting married to Jesus. And I'm like, what? I, I was actually, horrified. I was horrified. <laughs> I'm dying over here. I was so old when I did mine that I couldn't wear the dresses like the little kids. And I actually Aww. wore. And those a, dresses are the best. A white bridesmaid's dress that my dad took me to David's bridal to get. That's adorable. <laughs> I love that. And my veil was from there too. I still have it. It's in my cedar chest. That's so cute. <laughs> I love it. Anything to do with the ruffles. I just remember being covered in ruffles. Oh my goodness. I remember I wanted it because I was like, I want to get dressed up. That well, it like sucked fun. because I had to get up on Saturday mornings. Oh, yeah. I didn't. They didn't explain to me that you have to go to church and like learn things. I right. was just like, I Back want the dress. I want the party. Why is she getting presents? Right. That's true. Did you do catechism in English or in Spanish? Only Spanish. Oh. To this day, I've never I've never done a mass in English. So I got a mass in English now. Mm -hmm. um, but growing up, we did everything in Spanish. And I remember having to learn my prayers in English. I was dating somebody who was very really? Catholic. And we went to mass together. And he took me to an English mass. And I was like, I don't know how to pray in English. I don't know how to pray in English. I know one prayer in English. Yeah. And that's it. Everything else I know how to do, I do it in Spanish. Mm. And I, I love it. I love the I theatrics too. of it. Yeah, of course. It's beautiful. I love it. Uh, I want to do some bonus material. <laughs> so okay. we have called you a feminist, for better or for worse. Always. Um, always. Love it. So, okay. So you obviously identify as a feminist. Absolutely. How has your feminism changed as you've grown up and through your artwork? So my feminism has changed. My feminism has definitely changed. It's absolutely evolved because growing up, you see a lot of um, growing up, I saw a lot of and only the white representation of pop culture. I am mm. a huge pop culture nerd. Um, and so growing up other than like Sabado Gigante and, you know, the Don soap Francisco. operas <laughs> and the girls and and all of that, you know, that was that was a huge part of my upbringing. But it did evolve more into including because I started to realize as we wait a second. I was like, I am Latina and I have all of these other influences. So I'm going to start putting it more out there yeah. as opposed to just appealing to the broad audience of it. Um, and so it's definitely involved. And I think it's evolved and, and so much so that I only want to talk about when I speak about feminism, how it includes other women of color or Afro-Latinas and, you know, the trans community, just because it's so vital and to me, it's just, it's absolutely a part of my feminist DNA. Yeah, well, feminism isn't feminism if it's not in intersectional. Exactly, absolutely. And so, you know, you take it back to Brown Girls Rising and you take it back to what's going on with the marches. And I think it's super important to point out that, yes, women have been fighting for their rights for, you know, since the 20s, if not earlier. But it's like, if you don't include other marginalized voices, then we're all kind of losing because mm. you don't get to like go and fight for feminism. Yay. But then like, yeah, you know, have help or, you know, whatever and treat them as if they're lesser than if that makes any sense. Yes. Um, so who are some of your feminist icons? Um, oh, my God. There's so many. <laughs> um, Top three. Top, oh, that's even harder. Um, <laughs> I can literally give you some of my very first early memories of feminism. My first role model was Amelia Earhart. Mm. And then it was Neely Bly. And then um, 
Annie Oakley. Neely Bly was a journalist. Oh. She was one of the first female journalists uh, at the turn of the century, if my history is correct. And then Annie Oakley was the first woman to be in like a oh, yeah. gun slinger kind of woman. And then, of course, it evolves into, you know, I was a huge nerd growing up. So it ranged from like Nancy Drew to, you know, now you have females in my life, like, you know, my mother, as well as, you know, just anyone that's looking to make a change. So it's it's a pretty generalized, um, like, amount of feminists. But there's so many that I don't even know if I could really narrow it down. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> I know, especially now there's so many to choose from. Exactly. Okay, so closing this conversation out, mm-hmm. um, where can people find you? So people can find me on Instagram. That's my favorite platform outside of Twitter. <laughs> Instagram, it's at Minzy Mohan like Lindsay Lohan, except with M's. And <laughs> Twitter is Polaroid Rage or Polaroid underscore Rage because that's my hipster wrestling name. Oh, it's like Roid Rage. Exactly. That Polaroids. Exactly. Every time I hear the word Polaroid, I automatically remember people shaking the photos. Exactly, which is funny because you're not supposed to. You're not, not supposed, supposed to. <laughs> Andre 3000 got that one wrong. Mm-hmm. Shake it like a but that's, shake it. Those are my two favorite no, wait, that's styles. Polaroid picture. Shake it like a Polaroid picture. Yeah. What That's the little John. Shaker? That's little John. <laughs> Ratchet moment! <laughs> and the Ying Yang twins. Ratchet oh, moment! Yin-yang twins. Those sages. <laughs> <laughs> and the room gets always quiet. Give, <laughs> always giving us the best philosophy of life. Always. Amazing. Maritza, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Brown Girls Rising. Bye. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was brought to you by Nylon Espanol and recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time.